Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Would you pray with me, Father? We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, that it is all true. We thank you, Father, as well, that uh, your truth is your love for us and your truth is your good for us as well. I pray this morning that we would render our hearts to be pliable, to be moldable in your hands this morning and our spirits as well. I pray that um, as we read this word this morning that you would prepare us to receive your truth in Jesus' precious name. Beginning in verse number 24, the Bible says this, Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and they served what was been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to graceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lusts for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that what they do is not right. They are all filled with unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even when your word hits hard, even when your word doesn't seem to be popular, even when your word makes it uncomfortable. I pray, Father, that as we read your word this morning, we would read ourselves into this, that we would not see they, so it's in uh, a they and them situation, but it, it is us and we. Father, because this is what falls upon all of us because we've turned our back on you. So I pray this morning you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, guide me and hold me. I pray as your messenger this morning in Jesus' precious name, amen. So if you missed last week's message from verses 18 through 23, you probably feel like, okay, we just jumped right into the middle of something, right? I came in on the middle of a conversation or something like that because, I mean, the very first word of our text this morning is therefore, right? Um, in, in Bible college and, and, and in studying scripture, there's this, there's this very, very like detailed device that you use when you see the word therefore in scripture. Okay, here, here it is. You ready for this? I hope you can handle it. When you see the word therefore in scripture, you ask the question, what is therefore therefore, right? Okay, so that causes us to look above that passage and say, okay, so I've come in on the middle of something. What have I come in on the middle of? And it's going to help me understand why we're where we are, okay? So let me just quickly review where we've been so that we can understand where we, where we are, okay? The main theme of the book of Romans is what? Help me out. Do I need to go back to the beginning of all this? Again, all right, no. The, yeah, the main theme of the book of the Romans is the gospel, all right? And I know the easy answer is to say, well, the main theme is Jesus. Yes, the main theme of the Bible, all the Bible is Jesus. 
But in the book of Romans, it is Paul talking to us about the gospel, the nature of the gospel, the importance of the gospel, why we need the gospel, and how beautiful it is, okay? The key verse of the book of Romans, and I would, again, I, would, I said this last week, and I would, I'm going to keep saying this. I, I challenge you to commit chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 to memory, if you would, because that's the key verse. It's going to kind of keep us, in, uh, keep us kind of in line with what the Word is saying here. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as, just as it is written, the, the righteous will live by faith. So we see that the gospel is the power of God, and it is also how God has revealed his righteousness to us. And that righteousness, by God's design, should hopefully captivate our attention, captivate our hearts, and our awe for God, where we desire him, and we revere him, and where we worship him, because he is righteous, and because we are not. And the only way we can be made righteous is through him and through his son, Jesus Christ. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have hope. That's the basic message of the gospel. All right, the Bible tells us that the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith in God. It is by grace through faith that we are, sa we are saved. It's not of ourselves. It's not of our works. Because if it was, all we do would be running around telling everybody how great we are. The gospel says you're not good enough. God is your only hope. Come to God and find salvation. And as you find him and when you sidle up with him, he begins to change you from the inside out. A lot of times what we try to do and what we expect of others is we expect them to change from the outside in. We're more worried about people's actions than we are about their heart. And that's at the center of this message today. Okay, because this passage is tough. This passage has been used uh, ever since it's been written, but sometimes we can use it in, with the wrong heart, and then sometimes the message is lost. So last message, what we saw is that in verses 18 through 20, it tells us that every person, Jew and Gentile alike, learned and barbarian, religious and non-religious, have the same problem. All of us have the same problem, that we turned away from God. That we turned away from the evidence and the knowledge of God. And therefore, since that, since that happened, verse number 20 says, we are without excuse. Now that sounds tough, right? Say, hold on, tell me about that righteous, that, that, that loving, merciful God who's okay with whatever I do. That God doesn't exist according to scripture. I'm sorry if that's what's been said. And I'm sorry if that's the message that, we, that, that, that we're getting today from churches. But that's not the God that exists. It's not a God that says, I'm just okay with whatever you do. If God was okay with whatever we did, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. God's not okay with whatever we do. But he loves us so much that he cares to redeem us. We are without excuse for not knowing the truth you say, well, what about people who've never heard the name of Jesus? We talked about that a lot last Sunday in detail, and I encourage you, if you missed it, go back and either watch it or listen to it on our podcast or whatever. Because last message, what we saw was God wants to be known. God wants to be known. You ever gotten so mad at somebody that you just said, I really don't care to know you anymore? You ever done that? We're tempted to do that. Here's the thing. God had every right to do that with mankind, but he didn't. 
In our sin, God had every right to cut us out and say, you're dead to me because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he did not say that. He said, I love you enough. I want to, I want to draw you to myself. I care enough that I'm going to send my son. He wants to be known. He gave us creation to point out his handiwork and to point out his glory. And the heavens declare the handiwork and they show forth the glory of God. Meaning that even if we have not heard the name of Jesus, we look around and say, this, the order in this universe has to point to something somebody having put it together. But instead of acknowledging God's existence, what we have done as humanity is we have denied his role in creation. That's irreligious suppression. We suppressed, the Bible said in the text that we looked at last week, we suppressed the truth. Atheism, agnosticism, humanism, all of that is that non-religious suppression. I don't need a God, I am my own God. But we can't create like God created, but yet we suppress the truth. Then we had religious suppression as well. We are made to worship something. God created us to worship something. So instead of worshiping God, we turn to idols and worshiping what was created rather than worshiping the creator. And throughout history, humanity has worshiped all kinds of different gods. But the one thing that is in common with all of those gods that we've worshipped, those little G gods, is that all of those gods eventually stand to serve us rather than it being the other way around. But Yahweh, the God of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, the God who created us, is not one who stands to serve us. Although he chose to serve us through salvation, we serve him in, in gratitude for what he has done for us. So when it comes to God and our responsibility to know and to worship God, like Dr. Tim Keller said, and I shared this quote last week, we know, but we don't know because we didn't want to know. The truth was just too hard. We couldn't handle the truth or something like that. We turned from God and this is what happens. And that's what we're building on from last week. We see that this is not only did we not know because we turned from God, then we turned from God and we thought we knew better than God. And this is where we pick up from, from this. And this is what we see in verse number 25 when it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now you can personalize this text a lot more because we look at that word they and we circle that and we think, he ain't talking about me because I'm a Christian. Well, we weren't always Christians. All humanity falls under this they, okay? We're all, so it could say we exchange the truth of God for a lie. The truth that sets us free, the truth that protects us, the truth that defines us, the truth that informs us. We traded all of that truth that God has given us to point to him and to point to salvation and point to happiness and point to joy and peace. And we traded it in for a lie. God, I know you're here, but I don't want to know that you're here. God, I know you're right, but I don't want you to be right. God, I know that, I, that what I want isn't right, but what I want, I want it so bad, I don't care if it's not right. So get out of my way and let me do what I want. Does that sound like a teenager to you? Now, I don't mean any, any ridicule across our teenagers, because our teenagers are awesome here at our church. Most of them are served, every one of them that I'm looking at right now is served in some capacity this morning. But we all, whether we're teenagers or not, we, we, this is us. God, I know what you say is right, but I don't want it to be right because what I think is right, and I want it to be more right than you're right. Right? Right. <laughs> that was cool. All right. So, and this is what we see. And, and here's what the thing is. God, we said, God, get out of my way and let me have the wheel. To that, God said, okay. We see in verse 24, we see what this therefore is therefore. 
Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their heart. Verse 26, therefore, God delivered them over or us over to disgraceful passions. Because we didn't think it worthwhile in verse 28 to acknowledge God, God delivered us over to a corrupt mind. When you look at it, it's really a great exchange, isn't it? We traded the truth of God in for a lie, and God said, you can have the fruit of that lie. So we look back up in verse number 18, and we started off last Sunday with, oh, God has wrath. But you see, God's wrath is not necessarily him looking at us and being aggressive and pouring out all this judgment on us. It's just God taking his hand of protection off of us, and the judgment of our sin will take care of the rest. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin leads to death. I love what Dr. Tony Evans says in his study Bible. He says, this verse shows that God is taking his hand of restraint off, essentially saying, you want to do life without me? You got it. But understand, this is the passive wrath of God at work in history. He lets us experience the built-in negative consequences of living independent of our creator. So today, what we're going to look at is how all of this unfiltered evidence that God has given us of creation, of his law, of his truth, all of that, how denying that has played out through human history and is still taking place in our world today. And there's a lot to cover, and I'm going to try to get through this in a good amount of time. Now, your, your, your reference of good amount of time is different from mine, so we'll see which one we get, all right? Today, we're going to look at this unfiltered evidence. Today's message is this, is given over. But the hope of the gospel means that we're not given up. We have been given over. But the gospel tells us that we're not given up. So let's look at the results of our disregard for God, what it has brought us. Okay, number one, as we look through our text, it says that our disregard for God, our trading the truth for a lie, has led to a downgrade in our worship. We always want upgrades, don't we, in our society? And every, time you, every time a new iPhone comes out, I'm thinking, when can I get my upgrade, baby? Because I, I want that new camera. They got like 10 cameras on the back of it now, so I got to have that new camera, right? We always want upgrades. We're always looking to upgrade. We hardly ever look at saying, man, I wish I could just take a downgrade. You know, how many of you have ever gone on a flight and somebody said, you know, we can upgrade you to first class. And you're like, no, I'd, actually, I'd, I'd like you to just downgrade me to cargo, yeah, that'd be great if you do that. No, we don't do that. We want to see upgrades, except for when we turn our back on God, we will always take a downgrade. Always. Look at what it says in verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and then they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the one who created it. That's a downgrade. Why worship the product when you can worship the producer? He says, they worship him instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. And what we have to understand, this is idolatry at its definition, right? We took what has been created and we worship that instead of the one who actually had the power to create it. And we worship all kinds of things that have been created. Celebrities, politicians, all throughout all throughout all of society, any, any history of civilization and society throughout the history of humanity, idolatry has been a common issue in every single culture that has ever existed. We talked about this a lot in depth last Sunday, so I'm not going to go through it. And we talked about it in depth at the beginning of the year when we did the Ten Commandments series. But even God's people, God's chosen people disregarded God and they traded him in for idols that they could make with their own hands. The golden calf, they traded it in for worshiping Baal and worshiping the gods of, of their pagan oppressors. God delivered us over to the desires of our hearts. 
Last week I talked about how we all worship something, even if you consider yourself to be atheist or agnostic or humanist, we all worship something. Atheism is the worship of the idea that I know more than the people who worship a God. Even if, you're cons- if you consider yourself, you've come to a place where you worship your notion that there is not a God. You are worshiping your own thought process and your own capacity. We all worship, and guess why we all worship? God placed it within us, this innate desire to function as worshipers. We all worship something. If we don't worship God, we're going to trade it in for something else. And when we disregard God, our worship becomes downgraded or degraded. Here, the definition of downgraded worship is pretty simple. They worshiped and they served what was created instead of the creator. Now, the question I have when I looked at that, it says, it says that as we traded the truth of God in for a lie, we were delivered over to sexual impurity. So the question is, why is sexual impurity specifically a consequence of our idolatry? Well, because if you think about what worship is, worship is the act of offering ourselves to something that is greater than us. And what is the greatest way, what is the greatest thing that you can offer of yourself is your body. And in the sexual relationship, we offer, we offer our body, we offer our emotions, we offer our heart, we offer our vulnerability, we offer all of those things. And so we, da- we downgrade our worship and the way that we end up worshiping the things that we have created is that we end, up, we end up spiraling down into sexual impurity. Just about every ancient pagan religion had a large sexual component or perversion component to it. See, the ancient Romans and the ancient Greek temples employed prostitutes who served the gods of the temples and the priests of those gods. The Viking cultures of the early, of the early ADs, the early hundreds of the ADs, they practiced a lot of sexual deviance as they worshiped their gods as well. Today, it looks like we worship sex, but in reality, we are worshiping ourselves through sex. And I've been guilty of saying this. I look around our culture and I say, man, we're so sexually saturated. It looks like we're worshiping the idea of sex, but no, we're using our sex to worship ourselves. In our humanistic culture, we more worship ourselves than anything else. And so we commit our bodies completely to whatever gives us as humans, as God's, the most fulfillment in our worship of self. Dr. Adrian Rogers, great preacher of years gone by, said this, you know what an idol is? Simply put, an idol is only a magnified sinner. That's all an idol is. Man takes the worst, his worst vices of greed and lust and violence and pride and he deifies them. That's a pretty slick thing because then he legitimizes them when he deifies them. So all of our idols, all of those things that we end up worshiping, all those things that we end up casting God aside so that we can grab onto are really just manifestations of our sinful desires. So the gods of our history have really only been the worst vices of greed, lust, violence, and pride manifested through our imaginations as deities. So we see that disregard for God, number one, will always lead to a downgraded worship. And anytime you start worshiping things other than God, <laughs> the road is not going to be good. It's going to feel good, but it's not going to be good. And it's not going to lead anywhere good. So secondly, and we're going to spend a lot of time on point number two this morning is disregard for God leads to disorder in our world. When we disregard the creator of the world, it will lead to disorder in the world that he created. 
Scripture is filled with truth that tells us that God's desire for us is for our good and for his glory. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, I know the plans that I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being and not for your disaster to give you a future and a hope. God doesn't have bad plans for us. God's not looking to lord himself over us because he's trying to get some sick pleasure out of us not being happy. His law should lead to our happiness and our future and our hope. And in Jeremiah 17, 9, our broken hearts never desire what God desires. Our deceptive hearts are always bent away from what God wants for us and the plans he has for us because Jeremiah said this. He says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and it's incurable. Who can understand it? So this is why God has given us his truth. This is why God has given us his law and his plan for us because he knows that our hearts are bent against us. Our hearts are the opposite of Jeremiah 20, 29, 11. Our hearts don't have good plans for us. Our hearts are not thinking thoughts of peace and hope and a good future. Our hearts are thinking what feels good, what I want, and how I can feed that lustful appetite. Anytime we elevate our desires over the will of God, we will get disorder in return. Anytime. And this disorder plays out in just about every area of the world that we can imagine. The first thing that we see in our text is sexual disorder. Sexual disorder. Now, this passage of Romans is probably the longest, it is actually the longest passage in the New Testament that deals with the subject of homosexuality. Now, I want to preface this with saying this, that I know that this is not something that the church, by and large, has always done a good job with and I know that it's not something that's popular to address. I also know that we've a lot of times damaged our credibility when we talk about this. And we've done sometimes even a worse job in caring for those who struggle with this disorder. And when I say disorder, I don't mean a mental disorder, but the disorder that has been created by departing from God who struggle with this sin. So in other words, I think this. Culturally, and in the culture of church life, we've gotten homosexuality right doctrinally, but we've got it right in all the wrong ways practically. So I want to humbly consider the words that we see here in verse 26. For this reason, for this reason, and what was that reason? We disregarded God. God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Men in the same way also left natural relations with women and inflamed in their lusts for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. So one of the results of disregarding God in the center of our hearts is that we develop unnatural sexual patterns. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, like verse 25 says, so God exchanged our natural healthy passions for unnatural ones. It's simple, right there. It's just, it's just textbook and it explains to us. So critics of this passage, and there's been a lot of criticism over this passage in recent years as our culture becomes more affirming of homosexuality and the LGBTQ plus agenda, that this passage, I've heard people say, this passage never was included in the original text, that somebody just added that in there. And so they say that Paul was overly concerned and preoccupied with sexuality. So he says, this can't, like, like this can't be a result of the fall, almost as if to say that sex can't be touched by our sin. Again, when we use sex in our worship of self, it seems holy, right? So how can we touch something that is holy that we use as we worship ourselves? 
See, in one sense, Pastor J.D. Greer says this, in one sense, we shouldn't be, su- be surprised that this is where Paul turns first. Because he's not picking on homosexuality. If God made us in his image as male and female, then it shouldn't surprise us that the effects of our rejection of him show up in those primary relationships. If we reject God, the one who gave us the image, it shouldn't surprise us that confusion in those areas show up because our our sexuality, our sexual relationship, our sexual identity is part of knowing that image that God has given to us. One scholar says that Paul cites homosexuality not because it's a greater sin than any other, but because it's the clearest evidence of a, re- of a rejection of God's order and creation. Our sexual relationships is one of the base relationships that humanity is, continues on in the perpetuity of humanity. So if we reject God as the creator and the life giver and the life sustainer, then we begin to reject the order that God set in place for healthy natural reproduction and for life to continue. So critics of this passage have also said this, said that Paul back in that day didn't understand all he's really talking about is homosexuality as it's considered to be, you know, just frivolous, like one night stands and and just all based on lust. He's not talking about committed relationships, same-sex relationships like we begin, like we're beginning to see in our culture. That almost as if to say that type of homosexual, homosexual relationship did not exist in ancient days. So Paul didn't know that there was a possibility for gay people to love one another like heterosexual people do. So Paul was just not familiar with those scenarios. But here's what we see as we look back in history, even within secular history and philosophy. In Roman culture, there were numerous documented instances of committed same-sex relationships throughout the Roman Empire. They were even celebrated in Roman culture. Plutarch was a first century philosopher in Rome who made a distinction in his writings between homosexual sex for mere pleasure and just doing whatever they want, which he considered to be unworthy of Roman lifestyle. And he said there was a difference between that and homosexual lifestyle rooted in a committed relationship. He said that was the essence of a Roman. In his writings, he said that a committed same-sex relationship was beautiful and it was the essence of being a Roman. Greek philosopher Plato, even before Rome came on the scene, mentioned two men who had been in a relationship for more than 10 years within the Greek government. So now what we know about Paul, if we remember what we know about Paul is, Paul was not just like a, like a, like a, like a dumb guy, right? Paul was well-traveled. He was a Jewish citizen as well as a Roman citizen. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He had degrees like he was like a Harvard Rhodes Scholar, an Ivy League just genius. To say that Paul wasn't well-read enough to know the writings of Plutarch, which was famous back then, Plato and Aristotle and all these people, to say that he didn't, wasn't aware of that, you have to really just kind of turn off your mind to think that he wouldn't have known about that. He knew about that, but Paul makes no distinction here when he talks about homosexuality. He doesn't say God is against or we, what we had happen was homosexual relationships came up that were not good homosexual relationships. He notes homosexuality as being something that is not good all the way around. It's not God's design all the way around. So here's the thing I'm going to tell you today. I'm going to, for some of you, I'm going to look really, really just like a bigot. All right, and for others of you, by the time we're done, I'm going to look like I'm woke. All right, I'm just not going to make anybody happy today. All right, I'm just going to let you know this. Ain't nobody leaving happy today. And you know what? I wasn't happy coming here having to preach this. Okay, just letting you know this. In his book, Roman Homosexuality, Craig Williams says this. As a well-read, well-traveled Roman citizen, Paul would certainly have known about these things already. 
Paul doesn't distinguish between the natures of same-sex acts, Tim Keller says. He identifies all sexual relationships of men with men and women with women as a departure from God's natural design for human flourishing. God says they are unnatural. When we look at that word and see unnatural, we think weird. But what it means is it's going against God's intended plan for nature. Just like we go against God's intended plan for nature when we go against anything God says for us to do too. This is part of the fall just like any other sin is part of the fall. So Paul's not preoccupied and picking on homosexuality. And simply because he lists it first, it doesn't mean he's saying that homosexuality is some awful, horrible sin that's different from everything else. What he's saying is this is part of the fall. This is part of the fall. Where we end up saying it's not about what the creator wants. It's about what I want. When we're given over to elevate our desires over the creator's design, it's not about what, what, I, what God wants anymore. It's about what I want. And while homosexuality is the first example, it definitely is not the only example of the disorder that comes from disregarding God. See, we look in verse 28 through 31, we see evidence of all kinds of disorder. All kinds of disorder. Look at verse number 28. It says, because they did not think. Now, who are they? Here's where sometimes we make, the, we make a, a mistake in the translation. When we see they, we think they're saying, we're talking about just those who practice homosexuality. No, they was already instituted back at disregard for God in verses 18 through 20. He's not just talking about those who practice homosexuality. He's talking about they, anyone who's turned their back on God. Last time I checked, we're all sinners, right? So they is us. So let's look at us. Because we did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind as well. Not only corrupt in our body and in our desires, but also corrupt in our mind so that we do not do what is right. So it leads to, in verse number 29, says they're filled with all unrighteousness of evil and greed and wickedness. Well, what disorder is that? That's economic disorder. That's the sins that we see of when people begin to, when the rich begin to oppress the poor and when people begin to cheat on their taxes and when people begin to cheat the government and people begin to do all things that they can to try to cheat people in business deals, greed and evil and wickedness. That's economic disorder. How many times in history have we seen the lust for more and more drive humanity in some dark places and dark acts toward other people? I believe I read in a book somewhere, I think it was this book right here, which says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? So we were delivered over to a corrupt mind and that brought about economic disorder. Now we look at the latter part of verse number 29. It says they're full of envy, of murder, of quarrels, of deceit and malice. They are gossips and slanderers. Well, that's social disorder, isn't it? How many of you have great relationships with people who are slanderers against you? That's going to affect our social order. If people are just slanderers. When I read this, envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, you know what I think about? Facebook. And I know we're on Facebook right now. I get it. I get it. But, you know, it's, it's just basically like a scroll through Facebook, right? But honestly, when there is no God and there's no creator to regard, who becomes number one? I become number one. And that means if anybody's pressing in on number one, I got to get them out of the way. If anybody's pressing on number one. And what do I do? I'm going to fight to the death with anyone who steps in the way of number one and gets in the way of what number one wants and what number one thinks is right. And that's pretty much what drives Facebook today, isn't it? Then we look on in verse number 30, the latter part. It says, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. Well, that's spiritual disorder, right? It would be horrible to be, not, to be named among God-haters, right? 
But God-haters are defined by those who look at God and say, I don't need you. And even though we say, I'm redeemed, I'm bought with the blood of Christ, how many times have we looked at God's law and said, nah, I know better? Spiritual disorder, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. Last week we talked about how we try to suppress the truth which leads to arrogance and pride and our disdain for God leads to inventing new ways to defy him. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, but sometimes it feels like we just sit around finding new ways to just go against God, doesn't it? But it's all rooted in the same thing. I disregard you. I don't need you. And I'm going to do it my own way. And then we see the last one in verse number 30 and 31. It says, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Well, that's family disorder. Or the teenage years. No, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Disobedience to parents. What we see here is not just parents, but we see the attitude of, I'm young and I know more than those old, those old codgers over there. Senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. This is only the tip of the iceberg that we see of the disorder when we begin to disregard God. See, our idolatry of self and elevation of desire above God affects every corner of our lives and every order and every place within our world. We said, God, I know you created this world and I know you create it with a perfect order, but I'm going to go against it and, I'm, and it affects every single corner of my life. This is what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. This doesn't mean that all of us are the worst kind of everything. What it means is that rejecting God is the root of every problem that we see. Every sin we have, every problem we see, every war that's been fought has all been traced back to one of these things that was rooted in disregarding God. Disregarding God leads to disorder in our world. Disregarding God, number three, leads to dysfunction in our relationships. Dysfunction in our relationships. We'll run through this list one more time. You're like, man, keep hitting us hard with this. I know it felt good while I was preparing it as well. Verse 29 again. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. This corruption and this disorder affects people in different ways. What we have to understand is, you may look at that and say, well, I'm not a God-hater. I'm not, I don't, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't come up with ways for evil. I, I really, I really don't do all of those things. I guarantee you can't get through that whole list without checking off one or two. And what this is telling us is, this is a laundry list. We may not all wear the same dirty laundry, but we are still wearing some dirty clothes. Every last one of us. You may struggle less with certain things on that list than I do. But our hearts are both corrupt and they're both full of disorder. And your heart is not more corrupt than mine or mine more corrupt than you because I struggle with some of them that you don't. But you see, that's what we do. For some, that disorder shows up in envy. <clears throat> it shows up in pridefulness or an out-of-control temper or inability to control your appetite for food or an addiction to alcohol or drugs or propensity towards doubt or worry or negativity. And for others, it may show up in the form of corrupted sexual desires outside of God's natural design for sex inside of marriage. It may just show up that way. No matter what the fruit, the central theme is the same. The root 
is disregard for God. The root is sin taking its effect. And that leads to dysfunction in how we relate to others. So it doesn't matter. That whole list of sins right there in this passage that we've looked at, what the Bible is saying is all sin is the same. All sin is the same. Because it all carries the same sentence. Death and separation from God. <clears throat> and here's the other thing that we have to understand. All of us are guilty of it. We are all without excuse. So what does this dysfunction look like now? Now that we all realize, and have you ever seen this happen? You ever seen somebody get caught doing something wrong, like maybe a group of kids or something? What happens? The minute somebody comes in and says, okay, what's going on? What happens? It was them. It was them. It was them. It was them. Look back in Genesis, the very first sin between, that Adam and Eve did. What happened? God comes and says, Adam, what happened? He says, well, the woman you gave me. Oh, yeah, I ate the fruit too, but she ate it first. And we've been fighting about that forever, haven't we? But here's what we have to understand. That dysfunction that is created now that we all know that we're guilty, we all want to look less guilty than the other person. See, we all want to be innocent, but once we realize we're not innocent, we want to be less guilty than the person standing next to us because we still have to climb for some sense of righteousness within the side of ourselves, right? So that dysfunction, what do we do when we realize we're all guilty? We begin to demonize other people, don't we? Because we don't get to choose our corruption. None of us get to sit down with the devil and negotiate how we would be tempted. Your temptation is your temptation. My temptation is my temptation. The Bible says that we all face besetting sins. That means that some temptations are stronger for you than they are for me. None of us also got to sit down with God. We didn't get to sit down with the devil. We also didn't get to sit down with God and negotiate which areas we'd be stronger in. I didn't get to sit down with God and say, you know what, God, I'm going to be a pastor, so I want to be stronger, um, I want to be stronger in my anger management, and I want to be stronger in, because I def definitely need that, I, I wanted to be stronger in, in, in all of these other areas. So God, if you wouldn't mind, make me stronger in those, and I'll take some weakness over in these other areas. No, we don't get to determine that. And the reason we don't get to determine that is because it shows us that no matter what our struggles may be, we can run to the same source for help in the midst of the struggle, and that is God Almighty. But what do we do? I don't struggle. Well, I don't, I don't struggle with that temptation, so I must be better than that person over there who does. Because what happens is when I don't struggle with this, I'm like, how could a person over there do that? Right? So what do we do? We demonize that person. We canonize ourselves, and we demonize everybody else. So here's the example that we've seen throughout history. Here's the question that, we've always, that we always ask, and I get asked all the time when dealing with, this, with the question of homosexuality. Is homosexuality a choice, or are we born that way? Many people look at it and say, who, who say, I don't really have same-sex attraction going on inside of myself, so I don't understand this, and I haven't had that. So I, I'm not coming from a place that I don't understand. I'm coming from a place of doctrinal understanding. What we say is the argument is always presented as an either-or. Either homosexuality is a choice, and you're not born that way, or homosexuality is something that you're born with, and so you don't have a choice. It's either or, but I believe it's not either or. I believe it's both and. I believe it's both and. In the years that I've been able to counsel, and, and the people that I know within my own life, and as I studied this, I think it's a both and situation. I think we are born with propensities towards these sins that are listed within our work, within this text. And some are born with more propensities and more proclivities towards some things. But the, pro but the problem is that even though we've been given proclivities, we still make the choice on whether we give in to those proclivities. We have a choice. Do I run towards the temptation or do I run towards God? 
And I'm not saying that it's, it's not strong. I'm not saying that it's not difficult. But, those, but that is the way it goes. Yes. Are we born that way? Yes. Yes, we are. Just like if you struggle with temper, you're born with anger management issues. But it doesn't give us the right to just say, hey, I'll give in to that because it's not God's natural order. Just like when others give in to temper or pride or lust or to any of the other things on that laundry list in our text, when we give in to that, that is when we violate and that is when we have sin. This means that same-sex attraction is not more severe or more, or more hideous to God than any other of those temptations on that list. And this is where I think reading this text should change the way that we talk about it and should change the way that we relate, we relate to it. And this is how I think that the church has gotten homosexuality right doctrinally, but in all the ways, all the wrong ways practically. Let me give you three ways that I think that we've gotten it wrong. Number one is in just giving up and believing that God doesn't really care about this at all. We, there are some people that we get that wrong. It's that permissiveness because God actually does care. He's very clear in this passage and in five others in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this to the people at Corinth. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people, nor swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that list, that is not just exclusive to people who are gay. It's inclusive of just about anybody who struggles with any sin. But I was born this way, is what many people will say. Not disputing that. And some of us were born with a propensity toward pride or greed or raging temper. But the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and need to be born again. Just because you have an instinctual desire doesn't make it right in any way. Just having an instinctual desire towards something doesn't make it right. You want to know what I struggle with big time? I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been slimming down a little bit. Okay, but you want to know what my problem is? I don't struggle with drugs. I don't struggle with alcohol. Never really cared to try it. Don't struggle with a lot of those things. You know what I struggle with? Pizza. Pizza. I may not get drunk on Jim Beam, but I will get drunk on pizza. I know no limits when a pizza is in front of me. But you know what? The Bible says that not having self-control and gluttony is a sin. You know what it means? It's just as bad. It leads to just as much death. You say, oh, come on, you're being ridiculous. No, I'm not. There's other sins that I won't even tell you about. That's the one I'll tell you about. We all are sinners and are all in desperate need of Jesus. We're all born that way. Every one of us. And you can't modify your behavior to get to heaven. You just can't. You can't say, well, if we could just, you know, counsel these people out of this, and if we could just, you know, tell you. No. God is the one who changes the heart. God is the one who changes the heart. It's not behavior modification. Salvation is not a, 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 an issue of behavior modification. It's an issue of heart transformation. The gospel message is not let the gay become straight or let the greedy become generous or let the oppressor become just or let the drunkard become sober. The gospel message is let the dead become alive. And none of those good byproducts can happen until we become alive. Just like the bad products didn't happen until we died in our sins. So thinking that it's not a big deal is the wrong way of looking at it. Also thinking that it's the worst sin of all is also the wrong way of looking at it. Again, 
Same-sex attraction, all of this is listed as one corruption among many. One corruption among many. If you look at the rest of those qualities in our text, you have to come to a place where you understand that all of those things are equally depraved before God. Do you honestly think that being a liar or a braggart is being equally sinful? What about greedy? What about having a rebellious attitude towards our parents? You see, over in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about self-righteous pride, you know, pharisaical pride, and the obsession to be better than others as the example of idolatry. And here's, the, here's where I say this, and I say this with the love of my heart because I is we, okay? I'm convinced that the church's historical stance on homosexuality has been less about concern for sin and more about discomfort with what they see. Different than what church people normally struggle with. See, we stopped looking at, at, at same-sex attraction as a fruit of the sin of denying God and looked at it as a root cause for all the problems that we face in society. Whole political agendas have been, fa have been formed to try to fight off the horrible sin that's going to destroy our nation that we call homosexuality. But that's not the gospel way of looking at this. Because you don't see lobbyist groups in Washington try trying to stop the sin of gluttony. Thinking that LGBTQ people are somehow not created equally in the image of God under the same curse of the fall as we are, but they're just political footballs and interest groups to be defeated so our side can win. That's what we've kind of deteriorated down to. And this is not the gospel way of thinking about it. See, all sinners deserve the same compassion. They deserve the same love and the respect. Do we affirm one another's sins? Absolutely not. But do we affirm the sinner in the image of God that someone that God loves? Absolutely. Everyone is deserving of the love of God and everyone should be receiving of the love of God's people. Don't read one, Romans 1 through the filter of them and us. Read it through the filter of it's all of us. It's all of us. Told you you all were going to think I was crazy. Then you were going to think I was too liberal. I'm just going to make you out wrong on all sides, right? The third thing that we do, and I know we're going along, is we assume that it's harder for gay people or for LGBT to get to heaven. This was a doctrine of the church back in the, back in the early ages, was if you practiced homosexuality, you were already damned to hell. No. We're all damned to hell from the moment we're born, if it's not for the gospel. You know how I know that homosexuality doesn't send you to hell? Because being a heterosexual doesn't send you to heaven. It just doesn't. What sends us to hell is refusing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Refusing the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God that reveals the righteousness of God to us. And calls us to be righteous and live by faith. Homosexuality, heterosexual sex outside of marriage, pride, anger, murder, hatred, racism, favoritism. They're all rotten apples from the same rotten tree of rebellion against God's design. And at the core of all that is the desire for humanity to be God and to call the shots. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says here. He says, Paul's approach to homosexuality is neither what we'd call liberal nor classically conservative in our culture. He doesn't deny it sinfulness like a liberal does, nor does he elevate it as the chief of all sins like a conservative does. He lists it as one of the many examples of the corruptions that come from a society that has rejected God and replaced ourselves and our desires in the center where he belongs, a rebellion in which we have all taken part equally. So we demonize others who struggle with the things that we don't struggle with. That's one of the dysfunctions. Then we also dehumanize and we destroy others who threaten us. 
in that sin and in that fall, that dysfunction that we see, we, de- we, we demonize and then we dehumanize. Look at verse number 32. Although they knew God's just sentence that those who practice all of these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but what? They applaud those who practice them. Doesn't that read like today's headlines? It also reads like yesterday's headlines because this has always been a problem. We see a lot of this in our political arenas today, but throughout history, we've seen it literally play out too. See, idolatry and self of self and rebellion against God has brought about some of the most awful sins against humanity. Some of the most awful. And all the while, the people who perpetrated those acts were celebrated within their own cultures as heroes. See, some of those brutal conquests in history. The Roman Empire, we talked about that. We're learning about that history as we go. The Vikings, the Moors, the Crusaders, the Conquistadores, all the way through history were driven by idolatry and lust for more land. And they look at it, and we look at it now and think, what right did they have to go and attack people simply because they wanted their land? But it seemed right to them, and every one of them were, were praised and lauded as heroes. I believe it was that same sense of idolatry that led to our own country and how we treated the natives when we got here driving them further and further away from their land and into little pockets and stealing it and saying, well, it's just manifest destiny. It's just what God wants us to do. Even in the writings of our founding fathers, we see how they wrestled with the idea of the oppression and slavery and chattel slavery that we put African people into and black people into. Now, let me tell you this. This is not woke theology. This is just simply when you look at this, when we move away from God's design for humanity, we begin to dehumanize everybody around us that stands in our way. Even in the writings of our founding fathers, they wrestled with the idea of owning slaves and continuing slavery as a nation after we won independence from Britain. Thomas Jefferson said that he ultimately settled on remaining as a slaveholding nation because they needed to build the economy as a new nation and they couldn't do it by paying everyone who worked and they didn't want to upset the status quo within the South. So they decided, this is what they did, they decided that the African slaves were less than human. They were only three-fifths of a human So that made it possible within their idea and their new idea of freedom in a new nation that African people, the African-American people were not human so then they could therefore be owned as property. And they could be bought and sold and terminated when they were no longer good property for them. This is in our history. They dehumanized it in their eyes so they could be owned as property. But because it was good for the economy and unity between the northern and southern colonies, slavery continued and even Christian leaders turned a blind eye to it as southern preachers twisted scripture to theologize their sinful view of owning another human being as property. And when the Ku Klux Klan was founded in the south, many of their members were lauded as good upstanding Christian men, deacons and pastors within their local church who were just doing the Lord's work. This is a sick manifestation of verse number 32. They knew, but they didn't know because they didn't want to know. And then they were happy as larks about it. Even today, racism, prejudice, and bigotry still exist. I don't have to tell you that. But we don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. We don't want to know. Or because, well, it didn't happen on my watch, so can't we just move on? We look back and we wonder, how could they have been so blind? Here's how. The same way we're blinded. When we turn our eyes away from God, we're blinded. But that same corruption, and I'm going to close out. I know, (laughs) I told you it was going to be long. 
But that same corruption and idolatry still exists in our society today, not only just through the sins of racism, but I think that this idea of dehumanizing and destroying others is at the center idea of the pro-choice agenda within our country today. What it is, is I'll be the one, not God, who determines life and death of this baby inside of me, and I'm going to base that decision on how it affects me personally. See, that's a real heartless way of looking at it. It's a very uneducated, it's a very man way of looking at it. Yeah, I realize I'm a man. I'm not going to apologize that God created me as one. When you consider the pro-choice political platform and the messaging that plays out through media and candidates, you get some really troubling scenes. Like a few years ago, when the New York Senate and the legislature passed an abortion bill that, took a, that made abortion okay all the way up to the very moment of birth, when that bill finally passed by an overwhelming majority, they stood and applauded within the House of the New York legislature. We celebrated and we applauded. Now let me say this, just like with same-sex attraction, there are some in this church who are watching or who are listening this morning and you struggle with abortion and you've, or maybe you've had an abortion and I want you to know that none of what I have said today or you're struggling with same-sex attraction, none of what I have said today has been from a heart of judgment. It has, been not, it has been from a heart of hate and none of it has been hopefully from a heart of where I say, I just don't understand so therefore I don't know. I'm telling you what I do understand from the word of God. I'm hoping and praying, I prayed all week that this was coming from a place of compassion and understanding what is truly driving our cultural messaging and our cultural choices today. But here's the most important question we have to determine when it comes to abortion. Is the baby in the womb a human life? Is it made in the image of God? And if it is, then it is ever really, ever really rightfully okay to willfully take an innocent human life. If it's a known fact that it is an atrocity to enslave another human against their will, is it not also an atrocity to take a human life against its will? No matter what stage it may be in. And I know the mantra is my body, my choice. Don't interfere with the woman's right to choose. And I'm all for having the right to choose about our bodies. And that's why I believe that, we can, that I cannot stand and say that a woman should have the right to choose over the body of a baby because that, body, that, that baby's body is not yours. It's not ours, it's God's. And I don't, want to pay, I don't want to paint all abortion as just a flippant choice either because I know that there are some very difficult cases and very difficult decisions that women have to face when it comes to pregnancy. Like in the case where your child may be more likely born with some sort of deficiency or some sort of illness that would affect it for the rest of its life. I'm not personally going to try to claim that, to know the challenges because I've never personally been there. I've never personally been there, but I do know that God the Creator never makes a mistake. Never. And God redeems those deficiencies for His glory. I have known some that have been born with those deficiencies, and those deficiencies have taught lessons to people that they touch all around. Sometimes our definition of deficiency is God's declaration of His glory. And I'm not trying to simplify it. I'm not trying to just be, you know, well, flippant about it, I promise. Or some of you may have been impregnated because it was against your will through rape or through incest. And while it's not your fault that you became pregnant, it's also equally not the baby's fault that it was created. 
And I can only imagine the horror of wondering if every time you hold that baby, you would look in the eyes and see the eyes of your offender or your perpetrator and be reminded of that most horrific moment in your life. And this is why I say that I'm coming from a place of compassion because I don't have a good answer to those problems. I don't have a good answer to that situation. But again, I know a God who has the power to bring beauty from ashes, to bring light to dark, to bring joy to hopelessness, and to bring peace to despair. See, I hope that through this text, what we're seeing as we close out this morning is that all of these things that we see today happening in our culture has played out over history. It's not just a political problem. See, I hear people all the time saying, man, if we could just get rid of, the, uh, of, of, of abortion in our society, we'd be great. If we could just get rid of, 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 of the LGBTQ agenda, if we could get rid of the liberal agenda, or if we could get rid of the, the, the conservative agenda, God, if we don't get rid of all this stuff, God's going to judge us. I'm here to tell you, think about it this way. It's not God waiting to judge us if we don't get rid of this. God has already judged us. And these are the results. And by us, I mean God has judged us because we've turned our back on God. And so the only hope is not to just start making good, good laws because that's just behavior modification. It's just painting the rotten barn. It's still going to fall down. The change has to happen in the heart. And that's what we need to be praying for. That's what we need to be working for. And here's what I want to end with. Say, man, this message, hard. Yeah. Let me give you something to ease the burden. Point number four. God gave us over. This much is true. But equally is true and way more hopeful, God has not given us up. God has given us over, but he has not given us up. Three times we see that phrase, God gave us over. But when we thought we were in control, we were just enslaved to our sinful passions and our desires. And something inside of us keeps saying something's not right because we know, but we don't want to know. And so we choose not to. We find ways to dig in and celebrate our rebellion and justify our sin. But the Bible tells us that no one is innocent. We can try to say it's innocence, but it's not. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, There's no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Throat is an empty grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23 says, and fall short of the glory of God. God gave us over, but he has not given us up. Enter the beauty of the gospel. For when we were yet sinners, Christ, Jesus Christ, died for us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God gave us over, but he hasn't given us up, church. And you may be here today struggling with all those things and wondering if you ever want to come back in this, in this church again to listen to somebody like me. And if today may be the last time you view or the last time you want, to, you want to sit here and listen to this, I want to encourage you to continue to go to this word and find what God says about you. Because all I've tried to do is tell you what God said. But hear God's heart this morning. Yes, he gave you over because he respects you. But he won't give you up because he loves you too much. He gave you over because he respects you. And you're not a puppet. But he won't give you up because he loves you too much to do that. You're not a lost cause. I'm not a lost cause. We're not a lost cause. Jesus proved that on the cross. 
So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, it's the gospel, the good news of the salvation that overshadows and swallows up this horrible reality of the rebellion that we live in. Have you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know him? Do you know that you know that you know? If you don't know today, come today and know Jesus Christ. You say, well, do I have to be perfect? No, you don't have to be perfect. And none of what I preached about today was to try to get you to stop struggling with any of the things that you're struggling with. It was to come to Jesus and let him do, and let him do his work. We're going to love you regardless because that's what we're commanded to do. Come today and know Jesus as your Savior. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.